Hi, friends. Thank you for tuning in to the Interfaith America podcast with me, Ibu Patel. We'd love your help in growing the community of listeners. Please review, subscribe, and share. And if you want to talk more about this podcast, feel free to tweet me at Ibu Patel. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This is the Interfaith America podcast, and I'm Ibu Patel. My favorite metaphor for a diverse democracy is a potluck dinner. A potluck relies on the distinct and delicious contributions of diverse people. A potluck tries to create a magical space where there can be creative combinations and enriching conversations. I had the opportunity to talk about a potluck dinner and how it serves as a metaphor for diverse democracy with a group of terrific people at the 2022 Interfaith Leadership Summit in Chicago. The panel included Nisha Anand, activist and CEO of Dream.org, Sarwang Parikh, Interim Director of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, Allison Josephs, Founder and Executive Director of Jew in the City, and Dr. Ulysses W. Burley III, Founder of You Be the Cure. I'd like to thank Latanya Lane, the Director of the Interfaith Leadership Summit, for setting the table for these guests and I to have this terrific conversation. And before I began the Q&A with this panel, I offered some remarks of my own on why potlucks are so special and why we should think of them as symbolic of diverse democracies. For more information about our guests and the Interfaith Leadership Summit, please check out the show notes. Now, on to the episode. Please welcome founder and president of Interfaith America, Ibu Patel, to the stage. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. The first year after college was the loneliest year of my life. The looks on your faces right now, totally priceless, right? You're like, really? I'm doing all this work to get to that? No, I swear, it was just me, it was just me, everything's going to go great for you, and by the way, it got better for me too. But you start with what you have, and what I had was two friends in the city of Chicago, a little apartment on the border of Lincoln Park and Logan Square, and the need for community. I was a teacher at an alternative school at the time, I remember my salary well, $12,000 a year. I was not hosting a dinner party because it would have taken my whole paycheck. So what do you do? You ask your friends to bring their friends and everybody to bring a dish. It was the potluck. First one, February 1997, frigid night. I made my mom's famous masala potatoes, made famous by her, not me, by the way. And in my... Indian-American, Ismaili Muslim household growing up, those potatoes were a side dish to the salnas and curries and naans that we typically ate. But the South Indian Hindu who came that night said that actually those masala potatoes would fill the dosas and crepes that her family would eat both at home and back at home in India. Jewish person brought this most wonderful bread, challah bread, and explained 
how the challah was broken on Friday night's Shabbat dinner and how a special prayer was said. It's a Lebanese Catholic who was there that night, a friend of a friend. And she was like, I brought my grandfather's amazing spicy dip. And the dip was made more amazing by the Jewish person's challah bread. And so it was like that. Things happened week after week. There were always surprising combinations between the most delicious dishes. Somebody would bring an item that they were really proud of, and they would share a story about it. And somebody else would say something like, there's a story like that in my tradition too. And as I listened to these stories, and as I tasted these dishes, it occurred to me that so many of them were about faith. And I'd been a part of all this diversity work as an undergrad, and so little of it was about religion. But when you ask people, when you kind of crack that open, that rabbit hole goes deep. And there's an awful lot of pride there. Folks would say, this was the food that we would eat during Advent season in the Philippines. This is the dish that my mom brought to the welcome table next to the Baptist church. And what I found so interesting was the stories of feasting, these feast foods, they were never separate from service. And this is what we did on Eve. These are the families that we visited and gave food to. This is what we did on Christmas. These were the families that we loved and made sure they had Christmas too. These feast foods, this faith, this diversity, never separate from serving others. And it happened so frequently that I started thinking, maybe it's not chance. You know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be surprised. Maybe I should kind of wonder, what's the design here? Maybe there's something about a potluck that just brings out the best in pluralism. So I'd grown up with the melting pot metaphor. Who grew up with the melting pot metaphor? So I grew up with it uh, in my history books, but also in my life. Um, after about eighth grade, we stopped having turkey on Thanksgiving. In my household, we had biryani, which is an Indian Muslim feast food. And do you know how many people I told at school that we were having biryani for Thanksgiving? Anybody guess the number? Zero, zero, melting pot, melting pot, right? And then there was a time when I thought diversity work was a battlefield. And the only thing I had was wounds. And I quoted Ani DeFranco, every tool is a weapon if you hold it right. And then started thinking about that. Tools build things. Weapons hurt people. Do I really want to walk around the world hurting people instead of building things? Am I really just wounds? Is my identity defined more by hatred of Islamophobia or the inspiration of Islam? I'd say the inspiration of Islam. I don't really want diversity work to be a battlefield, a place where 
I only tell one story about myself. I only look for one way to engage with you. So what about something different? Not a melting pot, not a battlefield. What about a potluck? What was happening right in front of me, this Tuesday night event that starts really out of loneliness? I just want to keep on saying that, right? Like, I didn't have 800 friends, not all of you, you know? I was a 20-year-old, just out of college, trying to figure it out, lonely. I had two friends and an idea. And then eight became 20 and 30 and 40 and 50. And I started thinking, maybe this is what diversity work looks like. People bringing the dish that they are proud of. People sharing the story from their tradition. People finding these creative combinations. And I started reading some years later the work of uh, a woman named Danielle Allen. Is that familiar to anybody? Name familiar to anybody? She was at the University of Chicago for a long time. She is uh, now the James Brancona professor at Harvard University, the first African-American woman to, to hold a university professorship at Harvard. And she talks a lot about potlucks and power. And she says a couple things that I think are especially striking. Number one, she says, everybody brings their best dish to a potluck. I'm going to say that again, okay? Everybody brings their best dish to a potluck, especially if the invitation is right. Second thing she says in a book called Talking to Strangers, she says, own your political majority. She means it as power. Own your power. Host the potluck. Everybody brings their best dish to a potluck. Own your political maturity, majority. Don't let anybody tell you you don't have it. Host the potluck. I love that. I love that. Why? Number one, it assumes we are all contributors. We bring the distinctive contribution of our diverse identities. Who wants a potluck where everybody brings casserole? Or honestly, everybody brings biryani. As much as I like biryani, it's not a knock on casserole. It's a knock on homogeneity. I want to try your casserole. Really. You don't want all the same thing at a potluck? It's not interesting. And you don't want to assume that somebody didn't have a dish to bring. Of course they have a dish to bring. Everybody brings their best dish to a potluck. Second thing. Create a space that facilitates inspiring resonances and creative combinations. It's not chance. It shouldn't surprise you. There's a design there. The way you create the space, that's what facilitates those conversations. That's, what, that's how the challah bread finds the Lebanese dip, right? That's the new stuff that happens. I love it when a spiritual seeker shares a story and a Shia Muslim is like, that, we have something like that. Like, I've heard a story like that from where I come from. Let me share. Number three, focus on what could go right. Focus on what could go right and maximize for it. There are a million ways for a potluck to go wrong. Okay? I remember 
my friend Jeff Penzino was like, hey man, I became a vegan. I'm bringing a crew of vegans with me to the next potluck. And I like lost sleep from like, I don't know, for five days. I was like, oh my God, what's gonna happen? Blah, blah, blah. Somebody was like, just send out an email. There's a crew of vegans coming to the potluck. Be aware of that. Label your food. Maybe don't put cheese on the salad. It's gonna be fine. Focus on what could go right, right? Most people wanna get along with folks. Most people wanna learn from each other, right? Like there's no reason to lose sleep over this. There's a million ways a potluck could go wrong. It almost never does. Focus on what could go right and maximize for it. Number four, subtly encourage the community to take responsibility for the health of the whole. Listen, a potluck doesn't start without a leader. Doesn't start without a host. Nothing starts without a leader. Nothing starts without a leader. But if that leader does his or her or their work, they subtly encourage the community to take charge. The preacher gets the choir to sing louder and louder and louder, and the choir members become preachers and go have their own choirs. But it doesn't start without a leader. Someone has to issue the initial invitation, arrange the furniture so people can talk, set out the dishes and the silverware, clean up at the end. I could do that for eight people those first couple weeks. I loved it. But as I got to 30, 40, 50, it's harder to do that. We wound up starting an intentional community called Stone Soup. We had 250 people at Potluck some Tuesday nights. One person can't do that. One person shouldn't have to do that. If you create the space right, the community takes charge for the health of the whole. And sure enough, folks started coming early on Tuesday nights to help set up. Folks, folks brought dishes and silver to make sure there was enough for everybody. Folks arranged the furniture. There was a crew of people that stayed after to help clean up. The community took charge of the common space, of the health of the whole. So I want you to keep this in mind as you go through this conference. And honestly, as you consider this country, what it is, what it should be. So this rapidly diversifying nation, this impossible country, most religiously diverse nation in human history, most religiously devout nation in the Western Hemisphere, you can bring a dish to the American potluck. You can invite other people to join. You can host the event yourself. You can nudge the nation towards more than it is, closer to what it might be. Not a melting pot, not a battlefield, a potluck where everyone is invited, everyone is valued, everyone is a contributor, where our best dishes are made better by other people's best dishes where we become more fully ourselves in relationship to others and in service to an idea called Interfaith America.
Thank you. Panel, come save me. Join me. Whatever. Nisha, thank you for bringing your son. I tried to bring mine. Next time, if I had known you were coming, I wouldn't have let him sleep in. Welcome to all. We are going to have a great panel. Okay. We are going to talk about potlucks and contributions and America and some reality. And I so appreciate these folks. They are powerful. They have, they have owned their political majority. They have hosted the potluck. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves because, and I've asked them all to tell something of a 90-second story of that introduction. And if it's okay, I'm going to start with my friend Nisha. Sure. I was thinking about this, the best way to introduce myself, and I realized that I would not be here today, quite literally, alive today, if it wasn't for people trying to do exactly what you're trying to do in your communities, on your campuses, and here today. My father was born in 1945 in India. He is a child of the partition. And for a quick history lesson, I swear I can keep it under 90 seconds, Ibu, as uh, the British were leaving India, they just drew a line, which we call the partition. And that was the line that divided India and Pakistan. And my family happened to be a Hindu family on the Pakistan side of the border. This was the largest forced migration in human history. So on either side of the border, if you were of the other religion on the wrong side of the border, there was a mass migration. And my family went into hiding. Because at that point, people were being killed, brutalized. You couldn't escape. It was, it was terrifying all sides. And the story I grew up with was that um, my dad, being very young, started crying. And he risked the lives of the whole family. And so my grandfather decided in this moment while they were hiding, he would have to sacrifice my son to save the whole family. And my grandmother, as us moms do, shook him really hard and he stopped crying. Just the right moment. But the other thing that was true was it wasn't just our family at risk. My family was hiding with their neighbors. The Muslim family that they had grown up with their whole lives took my family in and hid them to great risk to themselves. And my family, when they tell this story now, you still see the tears in their eyes as they recount that at one point when one of the roaming militia groups was running through and, and asking, are you hiding any Hindus in your house? This family swore on the Quran that they had nobody in the house. And my family lived and they made it out. And my parents know what a risk that was to do. And they're alive today for that. That ability to see our shared humanity in the times when you had no reason to do so, and in fact, you could lose your life for doing that, a family stood up for my family and we're, we're alive today. And so I've been committed to that vision that we are so much more together. Our shared humanity unites us. Everything that's been created to divide us is not as strong as what's there to unite us. Thank you, Nisha. As a, from South Asia, I feel that very deeply. Thank you. Sarang. Thanks, everybody, for letting me be here. Thank you for making sure that story resonates with me as well. Um, I came as an immigrant to this country as well when I was five years old, and a lot of that was uh, through the pressure of economics to uh, make it, as you know, a lot of immigrant stories start. And 
part of where we kind of danced around in the States. Uh, we landed in South Carolina, not too far from where Nisha's family apparently was. And um, growing up as a, a brown person, uh, South Asian immigrant, Hindu raised originally um, within the Deep South was a complex process, as you can imagine. Um, it was hard to know where I began and like what I'm supposed to be. And I think part of that was even more um, activated by my brother who went through a major mental, mental health challenge. And those forces of trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be inside of a place where I don't see a reflection of myself and having a fracture of mental health around me really had me question what am I supposed to do with all of this pain? What am I supposed to be in the wound? And it was through that journey that kind of I sought faith, sought uh, practices within Buddhist practice and yoga, and really recognized there's a way in which um, to be able to see some sense of kind of a teacher says brilliant sanity in our own self, right? That there's healing capacity. And that brought me into psychology and spirituality and into this particular seat of trying to find a marriage between those two practices in this particular day and age where we can really recognize a brilliant sanity, right? That we all have something really beautiful that's shining within us and how we can access that with each other and in ourselves and that it's not something outside of us that's gonna really normalize us, that we really have to accept that part. Thank you. Thank you. Allison. Well, I just wanna say that this is so inspiring to be here and I know when my heart gets touched by a message, it's because it's true and your speech and the video is just, my heart is so touched and I'm honored to be here. Um, I grew up Jewish, um, but not too Jewish. Um, I grew up uh, sort of seeing a certain type of Jew as being too Jewish. Um, my grandfather was one of the more Jewish Jews, um, and his journey away from being too Jewish probably began when he was a child in Ukraine, and um, some local anti-Semites lined up his family to see how many bullets a Jew uh, could would go through Jews, uh, or how many Jews a bullet could go through. There we go. They lined up his whole family to see how many Jews their bullet could go through. Um, and just in the nick of time, some Cossacks came riding through and disrupted this impromptu pogrom. And my, my grandfather's family got out, came to America, um, and he sort of moved away from his Jewishness. And so while I always had a proud Jewish identity, I looked at the Orthodox community as sort of being other weird and nothing I wanted to be a part of. When I was eight years old, a girl in my school was murdered by her father. Um, he had some severe mental health issues and the night before he killed the entire family. And on a cold fourth grade morning, I walked in and discovered my classmate was dead. And suddenly I was launched into this major existential crisis, trying to understand why do I exist? What's my purpose here? Do I bring anything with me when I leave? And my parents were successful people, but when I asked them the most basic question of existence, they just sort of stared back at me. After about seven years of off and on insomnia and panic attacks, I connected with an Orthodox teacher at an after-school Hebrew high. The idea was not to actually become more observant. At this school, I was meant to just meet a nice Jewish boy and eat cheeseburgers with him, <laughs> just so the Jewish people could continue because of pogroms and the Holocaust. And my mother would sometimes invoke the Spanish Inquisition if she really wanted to guilt us. Um, and what I discovered from this teacher was that he was not a rock-throwing, women-subjugating extremist that the media had told me he would be as an Orthodox man. He was a nice, normal guy living in the world with spiritual practice and wisdom and 
faith to wrap his arms around, and I felt betrayed that my parents had given my sisters and me everything, and I didn't even know my own heritage. And I came to believe that media had really caused a lot of the, that misinformation, really only highlighting the crooks, creeps, and extremists of my community, and never showing anyone decent. And I decided uh, 15 years ago, it was actually our 15th year anniversary of starting Jew in the City, that I was going to take the media on. Started on social media, and in the last year, we built a Hollywood bureau of Jew in the City, and we are now literally talking to all the networks and telling them our story and asking to be seen as we see ourselves and not their version of it. Thank you. So powerful. <laughs> Dr. Burley. Thank you. I am from Houston, Texas, born and raised. And I grew up Lutheran, fourth generation Lutheran. For people who look like me in the South, that was uncharacteristic. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America statistically is the widest denomination in America at 96%, with 1% membership of persons of African descent. But my family, particularly on my mom's side, were third-generation Lutherans. And although my dad was Baptist, my mom said, I want my children to worship Lutheran. And so we did, and to this day I still do, while struggling with the dynamic of being a minority in a majority faith institution. I am an immunologist by primary training. I founded an organization, You Be The Cure, which operates at the intersection of faith, health, and human rights. And that founding was really as a result of an experience that I had during my medical training in Buenos Aires, Argentina, where for one year I was caring for people living with HIV and AIDS. And as I would encounter these people, I would begin to learn their stories. And it became clear to me that everybody had a backstory that was connected to their medical diagnosis. Stories of poverty, stories of discrimination, stories of substance misuse, stories of religious persecution, stories of racism and homophobia and transphobia. And it became clear to me that no matter what I did for patients in my care, I would always have to send them back out into a world that made them sick. And so I began to reflect on what it really meant for me to be a physician, for me to be a healthcare provider. If I could only manage illness in the context of a hospital and not in society where it manifests. And so from that experience, I decided that I was going to be the kind of physician that treats people and not just disease. And the way in which I was able to marry my work in HIV and my faith was through that very Lutheran church uh, that I grew up in that had an HIV and AIDS strategy before even our country did. And so today, as a result of my faith, but also as a result of my vocation and my training, uh, I do this work full time at the intersection of faith and health. These are such powerful stories. Thank you. And, and you know. <laughs> And one of the things I just want to underscore is, is so often faith in philosophical communities get there first, right? Or they risk everything. Hmm. They're, they feel called. They feel called. So listen, what dish do you bring to the potluck? Mm. From your tradition, 
faith or philosophical tradition, what do you contribute? What's your best dish to the potluck? I say, you know, some as a Muslim, as an Ismaili Muslim, uh, this Quranically is, is, I love the line, Ramatul Alameen, that, that God uh, made the Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of God be upon him, to be nothing but a special mercy upon all the worlds. You know, I love so many things about the Islamic tradition and the Quran, and that's up there with, with anything else, right? That we were meant to be nothing but a special mercy upon all the worlds. Not any mercy, not one world, special mercy, all the worlds, right? Nisha, what do you bring? I was thinking about the sense of commitment my parents had, this commitment to um, I mean, a lot of our traditions, you're committed to your family, and, and Indians definitely have a very extended idea of family. And anyone that is an uncle or auntie, you're going to ride or die for them. That's true. But the commitment that I think was instilled for me from a young age was your choice. Whatever you choose, every day you wake up to, commit to it fully. And I think this is why, um, you know, all of it has a shadow side. You know, there is obviously a, a shadow side to arranged marriage, but I think about with my family and, you know, even my brother had an arranged marriage. There's this, you wake up in the morning and you commit to being able to love this person day after day, work in it, um, work with it. Every, that's the choice you have. And for me, when I bring that to the table, it's that commitment that I know tomorrow can be better than today. It's that commitment that if we work together and we work hard, we can actually create that kind of more perfect union, which you mentioned in your speech, like what could be, that's what I commit to. And that optimism, my staff counts on me for optimism, even in these really dark times, they're like, well, let me find out what Nish's take is on this because maybe there's something good in what's happening right now. And you can count on me for that. And my optimism, I don't think it's naive. It's because of that determination. If I do it today, I can create the future tomorrow. There's no other way to create the future but doing today what you want to see in the world. And so that's that choice and that commitment that I think we bring. You defeat the things you do not love by building the things you do, right? I mean, one of the first things you ever said to me was, the awesome people in the world will beat the awful people. And I'm like, I don't know if that's true, but I believe you. <laughs> well, there are a lot more awesome people than they are awful. Yeah. That's true. If we focus on just the awful people, uh, which, you know, you need to do, uh, you miss the point yeah. that we actually have a lot more awesome people. We're the majority. Yeah, look at the room. Yeah. Look at the room. So, Sarwan, what dish do you bring to the potluck? Yeah, it's a good question. I was talking about this with my uh, fiancé who's right there. Um, we were, you know, there's just something that uh, part of our love story got brought in through this aspect of um, this, this practical pathway towards liberation that Buddhism offers, right? That there is... A, a way of cultivating presence, especially grounded in unshakable love, right? Unconditional, unshakable love, and that it's accessible and innate in all of us, right? That liberation is actually just a part of us being here. We have a right to be free, liberated, and that inside of each of us, there's this aspect of a heart that is able to love unconditionally. In this particular practice, you mentioned this in that, uh, that beautiful video, of like this, these practices of loving kindness, like the word is metta within the Pali script, and it translates to loving kindness or I love unconditional friendliness, right? A friendliness that is towards all beings and all of life, irregardless, right? That you meet the stranger with friendliness just as you would meet your beloved friend, 
right? That you meet a tree with just as much friendliness, right? There's beautiful stories of um, massive rage from our line, uh, elephant raging and charging at the historical figure of the Buddha. And it's said that as that elephant was approaching him, he put up his hand and that it emanated this metta, this field of loving kindness that just completely calmed that being. And it, it continues to be a place that inspires me. Like, how do I meet the world around me in times of so much suffering, so much antagonism and othering? How do I actually allow that love to be like, this is just as my other me. This is a part of my own being that we're interdependent. And as great teacher Thich Nhat Hanh mentioned, we inter-are. We are interbeing and interwoven together, right? There's no separation. And so that, that itself is a point of delusion. And I really appreciate that practice itself. I love, we talked about this, but, but Thich Nhat Hanh was central in my interfaith formation, right? And, and the book Being Peace in the mid-late 90s and, and his line, the poet can see a cloud in this piece of paper. And I would stare at the piece of paper, you know? But it's, it's beautiful, like sharing our dishes and being like, oh, I can learn from that, right? You can learn from something and find it beautiful and not believe it the, way, the, the same way somebody else does. Allison. Okay, so it's hard to pick one, um, but since this is a community of future leaders, um, I went with a leadership direction. Um, I guess it's really just for all of humanity. Um, it's brought down in Proverbs uh, from King Solomon, and it's also sort of expounded upon in the Talmud, which is the oral tradition of the Torah that was written down between 200 to 500 CE. And it goes like this, Sheva Yipolt Sadik Vakam. Seven times a righteous person falls and gets up. And I'll sort of dig into that a little bit more, how it's brought down in the Talmud. Um, it's basically, and in this story here is allegorical, not meant to be taken literally. Uh, God is sitting around with basically the greatest Jewish leaders of all time. And it's time to say the grace after meals in the Jewish tradition. We say a blessing before we eat and a second one after we've eaten and be, uh, been satiated. And the uh, grace after meals always has a leader to begin the, the grace. And so God starts offering up to um, Abraham first, the first Jew, um, will you lead grace after meals? And Abraham starts talking about why he's not worthy enough. And then goes down to Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Aaron. And sort of as all the different leaders um, are being offered this chance for this honor, um, they all tell God why they're not worthy enough to lead grace after meals because they made this mistake and that mistake. And then King David comes around. And in our tradition, um, King David was known as having some problems. He committed adultery. He had Bathsheba's uh, husband killed in war. Uh, he made some mistakes. And he said, I will lead the grace after meals, and I'm the most worthy one here. Why? Because seven times a righteous person falls and gets up. And so my message to you is that we may often think that greatness comes about through not making mistakes, through perfection, through being born in a certain way that's better than other people. But my tradition teaches that is in the act of falling and falling and falling again, but getting up and getting up and getting up again, building that muscle, that that's how greatness can be achieved. I love that story. Thank you. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. All of you. <laughs> Ulysses. Yeah, so potlucks were a major thing growing up in the South, for sure, especially at church. And so I really appreciate this question because as a follower of Jesus Christ, for me, the dish that I bring to the potluck is justice. 
Because I believe that Jesus and justice are the same things based on the teachings of Jesus. If you look at his Sermon on the Mount and he talks about the poor in spirit and the merciful and the meek and those who mourn and those who hunger and thirst and the peacemakers, that's a sermon about justice for people who have been prevented from experiencing justice and equity. And I think that translates really well to your parallel of potlucks in that I don't know how many of you all have ever participated in the potluck, but the biggest fear is that you're going to bring something that somebody else has already brought. <laughs> and you don't want to be the person that brings another mac and cheese and people have to choose between the two mac and cheeses. <laughs> And then you get there and yours is the one that is least eaten. <laughs> and the ways in which you avoid that is through diversity of dishes. And the only way that we can ensure diversity of dishes is through equity and justice, making sure that everybody has an equal opportunity to be represented at the potluck. I think justice, in many ways, ties a lot into your dish of love. Dr. Cornell West said that justice is what love looks like in public. Mm -hmm. And I would really encourage all of you not to just love in private, but to love in public, because when you do so, uh, that is what justice in its truest sense resembles. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just meditating on too many mac and cheeses <laughs> at the potluck. Um, I want to go two directions uh, at once here and, and ask uh, um, you all to split up and kind of answer these, these two different questions as you see fit. The first is, uh, this is a leadership training, not just a participation training, right? So, so people need to feel empowered enough to bring their best dish to the potluck. But as Daniel Allen said, you already have that. Right, you already have like you are a part. You're already a participant. You already should feel empowered to bring your best dish to the potluck. Leveling up skills a little bit. How do you invite other people? Right? How do you invite other people? That's a skill. That's a skill. So we're working both in the realm of kind of the concrete here, but also in the realm of metaphor. How do you invite? other people to make their best contribution. Who's got this one? You can start. Um, I, love, I love this metaphor of the potluck. And you know, one of the things that I love about, um, so I, I represent an organization called Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And one of the aspects that I, I love, like I got to do this training with them. And it was all virtual right around the time of pandemic. And one of the most beautiful aspects of this was like the messages and emails that came in, right? Just the, the welcoming was like pretty much come as you are. There's no way that you're going to be able to come. It's, it's, in, it's not okay, right? You're just going to come as you are. If, it, if you're coming in, you need to have your videos off. If you're coming in and you haven't gotten fully showered, whatever's there, just come as you are. And I thought that was like just the welcoming of, and the warmth because there's so many potlucks, especially right now during the COVID time. It's like, do I want to go to another event? Can I, you know, like I really want to and they're yearning to connect and not feel isolated alone. And yet 
I see the, the, the impact of these two and a half plus years of like just the fear that's in my body of like getting close to others, right? And so to have that permission, like no matter what, just come, right? Just show up as you are. And then on top of that, right, what was beautifully sent was like these little care packages. They were mailed to all of us, coming from all over the US, right, all virtually. And they had little things like a candle. They had little things like a, a place to do kind of flower, Zen flower design, where you pick your own flowers, go out, there's gonna be practice. And what they was doing was cultivating and curating a way in which I can participate. And then also asking, is there anything that's in your way to come, right? Is there any way we can make this easier for you to get here? Even if it's just on your computer, do you need some tech support? Do you need this? And so having it come as you are, being able to like know that I'm gonna be able to participate in whatever way, that there's a way that they're making out of their way as a host, right? To make sure that I have everything I need as a guest to even get there. And almost before I can even arrive, that any part of me, any whispers like, I shouldn't go, I'm not gonna have the bestest. It's okay, someone's got you, right? Someone's got you, you're gonna be okay, just come. I think that was the most beautiful part of it, being able to set up invitation to anything that I come to. How do I meet people and how do I meet situations that just allow people to arrive exactly, exactly as you are? I, I love especially how you, you highlight like a Buddhist practice and the invitation, but like you send this flower that's from the tradition and that like, that's part of the invitation. That's part of the invitation. Allison. So, you know, my organization started off on social media, but I think the reason that it became a place where different people were drawn in from different faiths and no faith at all is because the attitude that I really bring to life and that I bring to the content that we put out, which is based on my tradition. Um, so number one, it's the belief that all people come from Adam. Now, um, not all Orthodox Jews believe in a traditional reading of the Genesis story. There are parts that some of us read more allegorically. But the idea of all coming from a single man is to say that we're, we're all related. We, all of humanity uh, has a common you know, ancestor. Um, we all have a spark of godliness that run within all of us. So the most basic thing is starting those communications with that idea that we are all from the same source um, and uh, you know, our brothers and sisters on this planet. Another teaching that I love that comes from Ethics of the Fathers who is truly wise? He who learns from all people. So while I'm going out and teaching what my faith is about and sharing my wisdom, and I'm so proud of it, part of my faith and wisdom is to understand that I can learn from other people. I will learn from other people. And sort of having that open heart to say, I'm here to share and I'm also here to learn. Um, it's humility. Um, arrogance is... Uh, you know, an attitude that cancels everything. That's the next question, we'll say that. But having the humility um, and being ready to learn from all different types of people is so important. Um, just a beautiful example, my kids grew up, gone to Orthodox Jewish schools their whole lives. And um, I think in middle school, my kids were learning a chapter on Christianity in their history class. And one of the kids asked, you know, why are we religious Jews learning about another, another religion? And the teacher answered back, um, because you need to know about another type of person in order to be able to respect them. So just sort of having this idea that through understanding other people, um, you'll be able to, to learn to respect. Um, 
And then I would say just the last thing is that we have within our tradition sort of two warring sides, two rabbis, two different traditions who had sort of different perspective on most issues that would come out. Um, it was the house of Hillel said this and the house of Shammai said that. But at the end, they would say, Elu ve'elu, um, divrechaim elokim, that these and these are both the words of the living God, that basically there is more than one way to skin a cat. There is more than one sort of truth out there that sort of two truths can be true simultaneously. And so being able to live with complexity, that there's not always a single answer to everything and that you don't have the, you know, the entire truth. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Sure. And, and Ulysses, because you kind of teed up the next part, I'm going to actually ask you to take us out at the end here. And because you have fronted yourself as a potluck maestro, I'm going to ask you <laughs> at the end a question of what does it look like to be a host, right? But we've just kind of gone through, you know, what, is it, what do you contribute? What do you bring to the table? What does it look like to invite other people? That's a leadership move. That's a leadership move. And we can't pretend, as Dr. Burley pointed out, that, that the landscape is the same for everyone. There are barriers, right? There are barriers. Uh, there's racism. There's anti-Semitism. There's Islamophobia. There's misogyny. There are barriers to contributions. That is not internal to you. That is not internal to you. And yet, it is a reality that some people might say, I'm not sure I want that contribution. So let's engage that reality of a barrier without fully internalizing it. Nisha, talk about a barrier to contribution, just the reality of that, and the trick of not like making that who you are, not being more defined by Islamophobia than you are inspired by Islam. Yeah. You know, I loved what you were saying earlier about um, diversity shouldn't feel like a battlefield. And I think that's really important because in this era right now that we're in where, you know, the, this phrase toxic polarization is everywhere, it is so easy then to break off into our own tribes and be with our own people because that's where we don't have to brush up against these barriers. That's where we don't have to have the hard work of understanding each other. And you actually win a whole lot of points if you can point fingers at other people and place blame in this moment. And that's not going to bring us together to me and who I am as an optimist. That's not going to move the country forward. And so I choose to take a stance where I think about um, not trying to win points, not trying to um, be right necessarily, but instead do right. And so for me, one of the number one ways, actually, this is something your team says a lot, maybe it originated with you. Um, it's not just the diversity you like. I don't know where that originated from, but I've, I've heard it a lot coming from the team here, that you have to invite all of the diversity, the stuff you don't know. And so in my work, I do a lot of legislation. I do a lot of passing bills, a lot of stuff that it doesn't have the, you can't outwardly see the love, um, but it's all from the place of love. And we do that by listening to people different than us, not just the diversity we like, and finding a place of agreement because it's always there. I think one of the big barriers is assuming because you have a different political belief than me, and that's the divide I usually am working um, around. If you have a different political belief than me, we can't find any common ground, and that's not true. You can find agreement with absolutely anywhere, anyone. And I think finding that place of agreement first and foremost is, is really important. 
there's always something we share. That shared humanity is, is so strong. And in terms of barriers, I think it's also starting with that common pain. Common pain will always lead to common purpose. And I think from common purpose, you can find those common projects. We can work together. We can find something to do together. And for me, that doing is everything that, that I'm about. I think it's important to communicate. You know, I think it's important to learn, to know, to love, to be able to understand people outside yourself. But I find it so important to then take that and take that next leap and do and actually work on making this country a better place, making it a place where you don't have to bump those barriers every single time you engage. And that's the path you know, I want to pave for the people behind me. And I know that that's what you're doing. A lot of the folks here in this room in your communities too is, is making that possible. I mean, one of the, the best parts of this is like taking each other's quotes, yes. right? So Whose awesome people that? are gonna beat the awful people, <laughs> common pain into common purpose through common projects, right? Like, like, you know, don't expect common ground. You gotta build it. Who's gonna take responsibility mm -hmm. to build a common ground? And Nisha's like, I will. You know, and part of what I love about people who do this work is you're like, okay, I live in a world that's not going to give me points for it. Fine, I'll keep a point tally in my head. I'll keep a point tally because this is what I'm called to do. So if I, who, I'm not going to get retweeted. Fine, I'll keep a point tally in my head. Right? So thank you for that. Dr. Burley, take us to the next leadership level, right? So we've talked about contributing to the potluck. We've talked about inviting people to the potluck. We've talked about dealing with the reality of barriers right? That's just a reality without internalizing them. What does it look like to host a potluck, right? These 400 people are going to, they're going to go back to Habitat for Humanity, go back to Loris College, go back to Williams College, go back to Endicott. They're going to host the American potluck. What does that look like? Wow. So I think first and foremost, to be a host, you have to be inclusive of all and alienating of none. And that is the foundation for the diverse relationships it takes to be able to host a diverse potluck. But even more than that, in hosting a potluck, you have to make sure justice exists in your invitation. And so sometimes we often confuse equality and equity. Equality would be sending an email to everyone to invite them to the potluck as you and your college mates used to do. Equity would be understanding that everybody doesn't have access to email or Wi-Fi, and then you need to go above and beyond in your invitation to make sure that those who don't have access to the invitation can also be welcomed and invited as well. And so responsibility of a good host of a potluck is not just extending an invitation, but doing so, keeping in mind that sometimes your invitation has to go above and beyond for different individuals to meet people where they are because of those barriers that exist. And it's acknowledging that by a, a going above and beyond, we build an inclusive community based on statistically significant love, and I use that intentionally as both a scientist and a spiritualist. Most of my life is predicated on data and statistics, and we're always looking at what's statistically significant. One of my colleagues, Canon Gideon 
Bishamaya, who is the first religious leader in Africa to openly disclose his HIV status, talks about this statistically significant love and making sure that our love is such that it can be measured, not just privately, but publicly. And understanding that while we might run out of dishes, we might run out of food, there's more than enough love to go around. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's a dish that we'll never, never run out of. Yeah. I mean, like, just like a thousand mic drops, right? Like statistically significant love. Serious, that's just, yeah. just, there's, there's a line uh, uh, in the Islamic tradition, God is beautiful and loves beauty, right? And just like so much beauty and it's bountiful, yeah. right? It's not just meant for one community or one group. It's meant for everyone. It's meant for everyone. So you all have shared that. You've brought that. And I just, I am so moved by it and so, so grateful for it. So if we could just like properly thank this set of leaders that brought beauty, that cultivated the diversity, and now is asking this community to take responsibility for cultivating the diversity of interfaith America and the American public. Thank you. Thank you for listening to season one of Interfaith America with Ibu Patel. As we continue to invest in creating and sustaining a more diverse nation, ask yourself these three questions. How do we make it easier for people to contribute their distinct dish to the American potluck? Are we doing our best to reduce barriers to contribution? And are we creating that magic space for enriching conversations and creative combinations? I would like to thank our guests, Dr. Ulysses W. Burley III, Allison Josephs, Sarwang Parikh, and Nisha Anand for this amazing conversation. I am thrilled to say that registration is now open for the 2023 Interfaith Leadership Summit. It is the largest gathering of students and educators committed to America's religiously diverse democracy. Join us this August in Chicago with hundreds of people who care about the future of our public nation and learn the skills to build that future on your own campus. For more information about our guests and to register for this year's Interfaith Leadership Summit, please check out the show notes. And don't forget to visit interfaithamerica.org for resources and stories about bridge building in our religiously diverse nation. I'm Ibu Patel. Interfaith America with Ibu Patel is brought to you by a generous grant from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Interfaith America with Ibu Patel is a production by Interfaith America and Philo's Future Media. I'm your host, Ibu Patel. The Interfaith America team is Silma Suba, executive producer, Monique Parsons, senior producer, Terry Simon, coordinating producer, Neil Agarwal, researcher, Johanna Zorn provided editorial support. Production by Philo's Future Media Team. Keisha T.K. Dutess, Executive Producer. Manny Faces, Producer and Audio Editor. Share this show with a friend. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Find more resources on religious diversity, racial equity, bridging and belonging, Dean and dunya, faith and world at www.interfaithamerica.org.